Game of Thrones Season 6, Episode 2 is over, but we're just getting started answering your feedback questions here on the Game of Thrones post-show recap feedback show for home. And now, here are the two guys whose house motto is, What is Dead May Never Podcast. I'm Rob Sisterino. Here is Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? I'm doing well. Good thing we came back to life so that we may podcast again. <gasps> oh, I was dead again, but now I'm back. <gasps> I'm back. I'm back. I'm still back. Really excellent corpse acting from Kit Harrington. (laughs) There had been a lot of buzz about this leading up to the premiere, uh, leading up to season six. Uh, Kit Harrington, he was going to be on the show. He was just going to be a weekend at Bernie's dead body. Uh, Liam Cunningham talking about all that kid gives good corpse. He really did. And he also gave great resurrection. I would have played it a lot differently if I was Kit Harrington. What would you think? I would have gone from, okay, so I'm on the table and I'm dead. And then what I would have done is instead of doing the gasp, I would have jumped off the table and like spun around and done the somebody stop me. Ah, yeah. A little bit of the carry. <laughs> yeah. Carrington. <laughs> that's what I would have done. Yeah, I like that. Don't you think that would have been cool? And then it would that's already- more of a faceless man move, right? <laughs> Where you like put a different face on. Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's like a different part of the world. That's what Jack and Hagar should have done in the season five finale when Arya is like, oh, you're dead. And Jack and Hagar is like, nope, I'm no, not. No, no. Yeah, so that's my move that I, w- that I would have done. But, you know, to each its own. Each yeah. Its own. Okay. House Ventura. Yes, we are ready their, to go. Their house words are when nature calls. Nature is calling. <laughs> Josh, we have so many questions uh, on this Game of Thrones uh, feedback show. I actually took a look at the outline before we started. And I was really blown away with how many questions we have from you guys. Intimidating. Uh, yes. very, very intimidating list. We'll try and get through as many as we possibly can. We have such uh, inquisitive listeners inquisitive listeners for sure but i mean it was a thought-provoking episode we all we talked about this on the live show rob how like you could have even taken the john snow moment out of it and this would have been such a rich dense episode to begin with so there's just a ton to unpack so we'll do our best we'll do what we can you guys had a lot of questions we'll get through as many of them as we possibly can yeah we're really off to the races here i feel like that there are some game of thrones seasons where it's like a couple episodes in and it's like okay when are we getting to the good stuff? Even like last season, I feel like that there were things along the way, but it was sort of like building, building, building. And then we had around like episode six, seven, eight. That was where we started to get to hard home and, and then the scene in the marina and things like that, where it was like, okay, now we're really blown away. But this season has really been where the second episode has really given us a lot to talk about. I haven't had anything to talk about with Game of Thrones this season. At <laughs> well, all. yeah. And you have been nonstop going, of course, on THR, The Hollywood Reporter. How many articles have you published since Sunday night's episode? Well, Sunday night alone, I had published three, which is why I was so late to the live show. And unfortunately, that might be a thing moving forward. We can talk about scheduling towards the end of the podcast. Uh, but I'd, I'd written three on, on Sunday night. I think I wrote... Two on Monday, uh, one yesterday, and so far three today. So a lot, and there's still more to come this week. It's my full-time job right now. Is I am I am beneath the sea, and it is beautiful. I am trying not to drown in Game of Thrones. I'm loving it down here. I'm like Bran Stark back in Winterfell. It's really, really pleasurable for me, though like my three-eyed raven editor is saying, like, ah, come up for air every once in a while. Every once in a while. So all good stuff. Of course, you could read everything Josh is doing when you follow him on Twitter. He is at... At Round Howard. All right. So since we have so many different things uh, to get to, where do you want to start this week? 
I think we got to start with the big man. We got to start with Johnny Snow. And then in addition to this show, you're also going to have the Game of Thrones book club with Terry Schwartz. I mean, is there even anything to talk about from the books this week? Yes. I'm joking. There, I'm joking. There is yes. everything to talk about. There's Teasing. a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a <laughs> lot. Really excited for that show. Can't wait to talk to Terry. We're recording this feedback show first. You will probably listen to this first. The book club will be out either on Thursday or Friday, but really excited to talk to Terry about not just the John snow of it all but you're on gray joy and all these other things it was a really fun episode i thought all right so make sure you don't miss any of that subscribe to the podcast go to postshowrecaps.com slash got itunes or search for the game of thrones post show recap in your favorite podcatcher and we do greatly appreciate your feedback and stark ratings in the itunes store because it helps more and more people find the show so thank you in advance for that all right let's get into the questions and the feedback. All right, well, let's start with the top story of the hour. Let's not beat around the bush. Let's talk about Jon Snow. Let's talk about the way that Jon Snow came back. I think a lot of people were right on the money that Melisandre was going to be involved. Let's talk about the way that it came back. This is a question from our friend Steve Davis. The prolific Steve Davis has a question about Jon Snow's resurrection and how it played out. Hey, guys, Steve Davis calling in. No surprise there. (laughs) Yeah, Jon Snow is back. You knew I was going to call about that, but how do you guys think about the way it was set up? And of all the ways they could have done it over different periods of time, they chose to take it over two episodes and revive him at the end of an episode. I thought we may have him coming back after being burned alive, which would have fueled some Targaryen speculation. He could have been brought back as the Night's Watch brothers were at each other's throats. Most importantly... My one issue with bringing him back at the end of an episode all alone was that we didn't get the reaction from any of his brothers, or at least the immediate reaction. So um, obviously we will get that next week, but if it were up to you, how would you guys set this whole revival up? All right, so what do you think about that? How do you feel about the way that John's resurrection played out? I mean, I don't have any issues with how it played out. I mean, I'm open to the idea, though, that maybe what Melisandre did did not work. Is that a possibility that you've uh, been discussing at all? Oh, what do you mean by that? Did it have more to do with Ghost than it did with Melisandre? This is interesting. You know, we have talked about this before. There's a ton of theories, you know, leading up to John's eventual resurrection of how it was going to play out. Melisandre being involved was a huge one. One of the other really, really popular ones is that John somehow warged into Ghost before he died, and he would warg back into his own body after death, and that's how he would come back and be Jon Snow again. Um, it really didn't seem like the show was hinting at that ability for John at all leading up to this episode. That being said, there was Ghost howling in the season premiere. Ghost is really just sticking by John's side throughout these first two episodes. Melisandre performs the ritual. Everyone leaves. Ghost turns to John. John suddenly lurches awake. Is there anything there? Did Ghost have something to do with John coming back from the dead? Um, I asked this question of the director of the episode. I got a chance to speak to him for THR to plug that stuff for a second. And I asked him if uh, if we should be reading anything into this, that this was a really popular theory. And he really didn't want to answer the question. Um, oh. he, he, gave a, he gave an evasive answer. This was his answer. I asked him that question. He said, I cannot answer this question. 
I would say if you keep watching, all will be revealed. Better to leave it to the fans to discover. I feel like that would be an easy thing to shoot down if it was complete nonsense. Yeah. So I think maybe there might be something to the idea that Ghost had some role in The Return of John. It really is interesting, though, because then we set up the Melisandre thing last week. And I think that if that was the case where really what she did didn't work, I feel like then why end the episode on her last week? So I do feel like that maybe Ghost is sort of tied into this, but I do think that probably what Melisandre did started it, but maybe if Ghost isn't around or if this isn't, like she probably can't do this for anybody. It just so happened that with a Stark who had his dire wolf next to him, that that was sort of like she was able to unlock it. But I think that there's probably two parts to this equation. I think that the exact specifics of how John comes back, that will be revealed in the future. I think that in terms of what really, really happened here, that's got to be episode three, episode four. You know, that answer has to be coming fairly soon. But I am of the mind that something maybe a little bit more complicated happened here than just Melisandre pulling a Thoros of Mir. I feel like there was a little bit of, you know, there's that fire magic involved. Absolutely. That can't just be coincidence. But it does seem like maybe there's a little bit of that ice magic as well through the direwolf. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, Jon Snow could just come back and say, like, uh, you guys aren't going to believe this. I was in the wolf. You don't know. You don't know. I was there. It was crazy. It was wild. They really don't see color at all. It's yeah. true. It's true. A lot of wolf stories. A little wolf story. So here's, here's another question about theories surrounding Jon's return. This is from Jason P. Hey, guys, here's my theory. Jon Snow's dead. But this is the smoke monster in his body. What are your thoughts? (laughs) Yeah, what are the odds that this is the smoke monster? This is not Jon Snow. Hmm. Yeah. But he's going to go around calling himself Jon Snow, and everybody is going to call him Jon Snow, even though they know it's not actually Jon Snow, and it's going to be very frustrating all season long. Hmm. Coincidentally, also happening in season six of a very popular show. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not buying that. I don't think it was that they brought his body back there to have somebody else inhabit it. Uh, I'm going to say I'm out on this. Yeah, I'm out on it as well. But there was a longstanding theory that Bran was somehow going to be involved in Jon coming back. And maybe Bran was going to work into Jon's body. Uh, and he was going to be walking around, and that was going to be Kit Harrington as Bran Stark in Jon Snow's body for the rest of the series. Yeah, that's like the Tom Hanks big idea, right. where it's like you have a little kid in the man's body, like walking around, and then Melisandre was going to be like, "Oh, who are you? Like, think we should get together." Ew, gross! Get away from me! But and that's not even when she's the old lady. I think that that would be perfect. Yeah, it'd be really good. I can't wait until they're both at FAO Schwartz and they're FAO Terry Schwartz and they're both playing the keyboard together. <laughs> Big Harrington. <laughs> Big Hanksington. Yeah. I don't know. That's all I got. And that's the end of the feedback show. No more, ladies and germs. We're done here. Yeah, so that's, I don't think that's happening. I think this is legit Jon Snow. But what is this Jon Snow now? This has been another popular question that we've been getting a lot of from tons of different people wrote in about this is, is Jon changed? Is Jon going to be different now that he's back to life? I think that this is a worthwhile question. Is this just going to be same old Jon Snow or has he been through some stuff? Uh, I think he's been through some stuff. He's been through, you know, life and death. And I do feel like that he is going to be more singularly focused on what's going on with the White Walkers. I think that probably we will have uh, a Jon Snow with even more gravitas, if that's possible. 
Uh, so I think that's interesting. I mean, we have seen we have seen people get resurrected on this show. Resurrection has happened before. This is not the first time we've seen Thoros of Mir bring Beric Dondarrion back to life uh, six times, according to Thoros of Mir. And every time Beric loses a little bit more of himself and seems more distant from the man he was when he was alive to begin with. Uh, we saw certainly in this episode, we saw Robert Strong, who once was the mountain, who was never the most talkative guy to begin with, but at least he didn't have a purple face at the time. Uh, so that's a very different form of this character who's come back. And of course, the Night's King and the White Walkers, they can bring zombies back. That's very different stuff. When we've seen resurrection in the past, the point being the people who come back are markedly different. And I am curious about just how different John is going to be when he comes back on episode three. Yeah, I think he'll be pretty much the same, but I think that he's just going to be more focused. Um, this is a fair question from our great friend Sarah Freeman. Considering, considering how many people have died up to this point, why are Davos and company only now asking Melisandre about resurrection? What's so special about Jon Snow as far as any of them are concerned? Well, I don't think that Davos really had been present for any resurrection business. I mean, that we saw Melisandre on her own with the uh, Brotherhood Without Banners, and she was talking with Thoros of Mir about that. But Davos was not with her on that mission. So I don't think that really he's on top of everything the Lord of Light can do. He doesn't subscribe to Lord of Light monthly. I mean, he can barely read. LOL monthly. You just elicited an LOL weekly out of me. Um, I That's interesting because isn't Davos the guy who comes to Melisandre and says, hey, Mel, question for you. Can you bring this guy back to life? Yes, just a he possibility. Does. He does. Um, so why is that on his mind all of a sudden? It is weird that it is coming from him. And we did see last week when he said to the guys, like, hey, you don't even know what she can do. You haven't seen the half of it. And so he is the one who brings it up, and it is unclear why that he feels like Jon Snow is the person that they need. He did seem taken with Jon Snow, but she was the one that identified Jon Snow as being sort of like having something about him back when she was around there in the beginning of season five at the wall. Yeah, she saw static. She saw she saw John in the flames as somebody who was loosely important or somebody to keep an eye on. Davos wasn't really privy to the, any of that information, and yet Davos is the guy coming to Melisandre and saying, let's bring John back. This would be a great idea. It would be really swell if you could do it. A bunch of people had written in with this question as well, which is, why isn't Davos asking Melisandre to bring Stannis back from the dead? Isn't that his guy even more than Jon Snow? So I think a lot of people are focused on why is Davos so focused on Jon specifically, and why does Davos think Jon is a guy that we really need to bring back to life? Well, one, I don't even think they know the whereabouts of Stannis. They don't know that Stannis is even dead at this point. You know, she sort of abandoned him, and he had left even earlier and I think there's a lot of things that Davos doesn't know about what's going on with the Stannis crew. And they don't even have Stannis's body to bring back to life. So I think right. it's sort of like what's in front of you is probably preoccupying a lot of the conversation. Yeah. This is a question from Joe Hileshorn who said, will John become Melisandre's new Stannis now? Would that be a good thing for him or a really, really bad thing? Uh, that's an interesting question. Would, is Mel- Melisandre, you got to imagine, she's all in on Jon Snow after this. Mm-hmm. But is that great? You know, clearly she is capable of some stuff. She's birthed shadow babies in the past. She just brought a dude back to life. She's super, super old, has seen some stuff. She's very important. She's very powerful. But she's also gotten a lot of things wrong, and she has mucked things up in the past. Is this somebody that you really want to be your right-hand person? Right. 
So basically, Stannis was like the macho man, and she <laughs> is like the sensational Sherry who was, uh, after he dumped Miss Elizabeth, uh, who would be Stannis's wife, then he ended up like uh, having sensational Sherry as his manager. I'm not sure how privy you are to uh, late 80s, early 90s wrestling lore. And now here is uh, Jon Snow, who's almost like a upstart Shawn Michaels, the heartbreak kid in the early days. And now he has now Sensational Sherry as his manager accompanying him to the ring. Yeah, I think that he's probably got to kick her to the curb at some point, too, to really emerge as a, uh, a serious contender. That must have been really great stuff for you wrestling fans. I think it really holds. Yeah, I think the people who get it really are, uh, I think that they are agreeing with me. We're not wrestling people at House Wiggler uh, to the point that Macho Man has actually been coming up a lot lately in conversations (laughs) with my wife. uh, Because for whatever reason, Emily really thought that there was this very prominent wrestler named Randy Sam. Mm. And I was scratching my head for a long time being like, Randy Sam? No. It was Randy Sam. And then eventually figured out it was Macho Man Randy Savage. Randy Stannis, yeah. Yeah, she thought it was the Macho Man Randy Sam. Randy Samuel Tarley. So I think that there is something to that where she's going to probably want to be his number one advisor, but I do think that he's probably got to get rid of her. Incidentally, Samuel Tarley's dad's name is Randall. Oh! Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. So I, I think that there's that. something to that where I think that she's going to want to like say, oh, okay, well, no, I was just backing the wrong guy. He's the guy that I'm going to be managing and he's going to take us all the way. Here's a voicemail from our good friend Omri from Jerusalem who wants to drill down a little bit more into Melisandre's powers now that we see that she is a lot more powerful than we expected. Hey, Robin Josh, how are you? This is Omri from Jerusalem, first of my name. I want to know how much credit are you guys giving to Melisandre and her prophecies? A few seasons ago, we saw prophesies about the big battle in the snow against the wildlings, which actually happened. And while Stannis never won against the Boltons, she never actually said he'll win. All she said was, I see Bolton banners burning, which for all we know may yet happen. So now that Jon Snow is back alive, which, by the way, completely shocked me, completely. Josh, I may have doubted you in the past, but I promise every word you say from now on, I swear by. So now that he's back alive, do you think we need to give any credit to her I see John fighting in Winterfell prophecy? If so, how might that happen? Does it have anything to do with Sansa and Ramsay? Thanks. Now, is there a parallel here between... Well, wait, I just want to interrupt really quickly and say thank you, Omri, for believing in me. And also, Omri, you're going to need to bring me all of the pizza, all of the time, or the world will end. <laughs> all the way from Jerusalem. You're going to have to move to New York and you're going to have to be my personal pizza delivery man. Is there a parallel here between Omri from Jerusalem and you and where we have Davos and Melisandre where, uh-huh. you, you know, you have these prophecies. You say, OK, I'm telling you this is happening. And Omri is like, yeah, 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 yeah. Tell me, you know, save it, save it. Listen, you know, F prophecy. Right, and, right. And now I mean, it, if if John hadn't come back to life at the end of episode two, I was going to be like Melisandre with a crisis of faith. I was going to be the one who goes into my room naked. and takes my ruby amulet off and just looks at my saggy body. And I just would have been really upset. And I just would have crawled into bed, <laughs> uh, except like my body wouldn't have changed. That's just what I got. <laughs> it's just all I have. That's it. All right. So that being said, uh, I'm all in on Melisandre now, right? I mean, you kind of have to be. This was from Amanda Fallon, who had written in all her leech wishes come true and she brings John back to life. What should Melisandre do now? 
This was a huge night for Melisandre. The leech thing came true because Balan Greyjoy finally dies. All of the kings that she said would die if she threw the leeches in, they're all dead. John's back to life. Gotta imagine that, uh, you know, the things that Melisandre sees, maybe she's misinterpreting them, but in some way, shape, or form, they come to pass. So this whole I'm seeing Jon Snow at Winterfell thing, that's coming up. That's gotta be happening this season. Yeah, why isn't she doing more? And that's why I feel like that she probably has to be bumped off at some point this season because it feels like that she's almost too powerful. Yeah, a very, very powerful person. Let's move away from Melisandre for a second and talk about another red woman. Let's talk about Jon Snow's half-sibling. Let's talk about Sansa Stark. This is a voicemail from our good friend Umberto. Hey, Josh and Rob, Umberto here from Miami. I'm just calling you to let you guys know that you guys are so naive so naive thinking that Sansa is going to make it to the wall and meet with Jon Snow and we're going to have a Stark Guys reunion. It's not going to happen. Like, no, this is not Game of Thrones. We don't get good things. <laughs> Sansa's going to be on the way to the wall and somebody's going to tell her or a raven's going to come. Like, no, Jon Snow's dead. And it's going to be like, oh, well, it's going to go to the Eerie with Littlefinger, who knows where. And we're not going to have a happy moment. That's what's going to happen. It's pretty brutal. It's a good point. It's, it's, a, good it's a good point. point. Our Philly backs that point. Our Philly says, can we pretty much be assured that John will leave Castle Black before Sansa gets there? No two Starks will ever speak again. Mm-hmm. I don't buy that. But I do think that potentially there is the threat of the Boltons intercepting Sansa or, you know, pulling John away to go have some battle where she ends up there when he leaves. I'm also worried about Ramsey Bolton also intercepting Sansa and taking yeah. her back to Winterfell. And that's why Jon Snow has to go there, that he gets the word about that, where Brienne isn't captured and she goes to the wall and gets Jon Snow and says, hey, your sister is out being held at Winterfell against her wishes. Right. And so we need a reason for Jon Snow to go to Winterfell if Melisandre saw that in the flames. Sure. I mean, it would be enough if Ramsay Bolton attacks Castle Black as he's planning, as he has said multiple times in this episode, like, yeah, let's go after Castle Black. That'd be a cool thing to do. Let's kill Jon Snow. I feel like that would be enough to get Jon Snow to be like, listen, you just attacked the wall. We're taking you out. It also feels really good because your whole family sucks and we're so terrible to my family. That's true. That's true. But she saw him fighting in the flames at Winterfell. So he needs to take the fight to them. Right. So he would push back against the Boltons. You don't imagine that Ramsay himself, especially now that he's Lord of Winterfell and he gets to give the marching orders. He's not the one who's traveling all the way. Have you met the bastard of Bolton that he is 100 percent on the front line? I don't know that he would be on the front line of that necessarily. I think that he likes to torment people. I think he likes his, you know, he loves to do the hunt. I think that that's his thing. He does enjoy that. But I feel like going up against the entire Night's Watch, that's probably too tall an order even for him. Um, so I could, I mean, I could also see him going to Castle Black, but I could see him just like telling some of his jabronis to go up there and, uh, you know, some of these car Stark douches just sicking them on Castle Black. I think the other thing, they're too, the worst, the car Starks, know, this, this idea of Umberto laughing at us and calling us naive for thinking that a Sansa and John reunion is possible. And our Philly saying no two Starks will ever speak again. We're at season six of Game of Thrones right now. And according to the showrunners, there's not much more than 10 to 15 episodes left 
after this season. We are mm-hmm. in the end game. We're getting really, really darn close to it. And as we get towards the end game, this is the time where we need to start thinking about when is Danny seriously getting to Westeros? When are the Starks seriously getting back together? You know, this whole story has been about everybody going apart, going their separate ways, seeing the world, living through their horrible, horrible experiences, learning life lessons, and then coming back together and fighting some common enemy. I really feel like it's a it's an explosion outwards and then an implosion inwards of characters getting back together. I don't think it's ridiculous at all to think the two Starks will ever share screen time together ever again. I think, in fact, it's almost ridiculous to think that they won't. Do you think the series ends with some sort of peace in the realm? I don't know. You know, there's got to be a realm for there to be peace within. And that that's my biggest question is what is the what is the state of society, uh, the state of the state when this is all said? I mean, I see zero chance that White Walkers overtake Westeros or on the move east at the end of the Song of Ice and Fire. Right. You don't see them in power at the end of this. Yes, I, I see good winning out in the end. I see good winning out, but not without mud on the face. You know, I think that there is no way of winning this war without enormous loss, enormous casualty, enormous, you know, damage and breaking of the breaking of the wheel, as Daenerys says back in season five. And if Daenerys were to tell you, that would be a good thing. So I think that that kind of damage could be bittersweet. I think that there are people who could really be lost and we could lose some really valuable people and some valuable aspects of this culture while still breaking some of the really terrible, like misogynistic aspects about it. The, you know, the, the power struggle between the wealthy and the extraordinarily poor. I think a lot of that could possibly break, but I don't Look, think we're that still it, dealing with all that stuff, but I don't think any of that breaks without there being some really good things that you lose as well. So I think that the state of Westeros will be very different by the end of the show. It's just a question of how different and what's the balance between good and bad different. I don't think that the white walkers are in charge by the end of the thing. I think that they lose, yeah. uh, but I think that they get some good licks in, at the same time. All right, let's talk one more thing about John. Here is a voicemail from Steve, the UPS man. Hi, Josh and Rob. This is Steve, the UPS man. With Jon Snow, newly resurrected Lord Commander of the Nice Watch, should we expect to have a scene next week where he executes the traitors? And if so, how satisfying will it be, Rob, to watch this <laughs> blade come down on the neck of that little brat Ollie? Thanks, guys. Bye. Yeah, this is a great question. This was also from uh, Am's the Ghost. Why not immediately kill Ollie and Thorne, give the people what they want? I think in reference to Dolores Ed choosing to imprison these guys rather than kill them outright. How dead are these people, or are they going to be forgiven by Jon Snow? As long as Jon Snow, when he gives the order, swings the blade and then says, for the watch. For the watch. For the watch, Ollie. For the watch. I don't think he's going to kill Ollie. I really don't. I think that he is going to potentially kill Thorne. I mean, I think that we could have this uh, same sort of scenario where we have Thorne being like, uh, you know, screw you. And he's sort of still like spitting at Jon Snow at the point where they have to execute him. But I feel like Ollie, he's just a kid. We saw his parents end up getting whacked. So I think that he's going to probably end up either being freed or not being executed by Jon Snow. I think this is going to be the great question of next week and the weeks ahead, depending on how different Jon Snow is or if he is a similar guy to who he was. I feel like right now, the fact that he you know, brought the wildlings in from north of the wall suggests to me that John is of the mind that the warmest bodies need to get together so we can kill all the cold bodies. You know, everybody has to band together. The living fights the dead. And I think, you know, if John is still that guy, 
I feel like he's going to look at Alistair Thorne. I think he's going to look at the mutineers and be like, hey, you took your shot. You very, very definitively killed me. And now I am very definitively alive. Can you just be cool and trust that I know what I'm doing? I am clearly an important dude who has been resurrected. Will you just get on board? Will you get on message and believe me now that some weird shenanigans are happening here in Westeros and we need to band together and fight that ish? And I feel like Alistair Thorne and all of those guys, if the choice is join up with resurrected Jon Snow or lose their heads, I think a lot of those guys are going to fall in line behind Jon. So I don't think that there's going to be much execution if John is the same guy that he was before. Now, if he's like some vengeful zombie John, that's a different story. I don't think so. I don't think that's going to be the case where John is going to come out and execute everybody at this point. I think that he's probably going to be much more. People are going to fall in line like, oh, my God, that he was the cho- he was the chosen one. He was the chosen one. All right, let's move on from Jon Snow. Let's talk about Bran for a minute. This was from Trent C. Holy Walt! So now how old is Bran? 28? Mm. He's a tall, tall young man, this Bran Stark. Now, you interviewed Bran this week, correct? I did interview Bran this week. And he's 17, right? And he is, he is not 28 years old. He is a very, very smart, personable 17-year-old man. Yeah, who is in the middle of his exams and just trying to live his life. Didn't make the interview, but we talked about the Oculus Rift for a little while. Good kid. Yeah, why? What is he doing with the Oculus Rift? Did you ask him, like, oh, is that like the three-eyed raven in real life? Well, we were talking about how, like, I was like, what did you, what was your interpretation of this whole, like, drowning beneath the sea thing? And, you know, we started talking, and he was talking about how it could be dangerous to be sort of fantasizing about this way of living for Bran. Right. Uh, And I was like, yeah, it's like, you know, the Oculus Rift. It's not real. You got to realize that you're just in vr and he's like have you tried it yeah have you tried the oculus rift i was like no not yet but now i'm going to and we're going to talk about it's it it's like when barkley used to hang out in the holodeck all the time and he used to get in trouble <laughs> it's exactly right <laughs> i'd be in there all the time that's, that's the one uh but yeah no he was great and he was talking about you know sort of the dangers of uh of what he's facing and i asked him if there's a physical toll is there a cost for all of this slipping back in time that Bran seems to yeah, be doing. Yeah, you grow one inch, right? Yeah. Every time you do <laughs> every it. Every time you go in, you grow a foot. <laughs> yeah. You just get really, really, really tall. Um, yeah. Uh, so this is another interesting thing. One of the big reveals, obviously, of this whole flashback sequence was Hodor, and that Hodor is not Hodor, but Willis. Saw a lot of people joking about what you're talking about, Willis. Mm-hmm. Yes. It was a very fun joke. I liked that. thought that was good. You know, one of the things I really liked from your interview uh, with him is that you guys uh, touched on the parallels between one of the opening shots, at least in terms of when the first time we get to see the yeah. Stark kids in the premiere episode, it's all horsing around at Winterfell. Right. It really did parallel what we were seeing where Ned Stark and his siblings are doing in that premiere episode of this season. And I don't think that that was a coincidence. No, it was by design. I asked Isaac about that. And he was like, oh, it was very kind of strange to see that and, you know, to feel sort of nostalgic about that. Uh, I spoke with the director again. I, I mentioned that before. And he was, you know, that was all by design. Um, and what was interesting, apparently, is they shot those scenes of the old historic Winterfell 
really close together with Ramsay's scenes of taking over Winterfell and becoming in charge of Winterfell and ruling over the place. And uh, I think that there was, you know, he was talking about how there was sort of like a weird sort of contrast that really, really brought into focus how different this show has become from, from where it started. I think that was one of the real successes of the, of the flashback in this episode, that it really does remind you that we're not in Winterfell anymore. Even if we are, we're not in the Winterfell that we remembered from before. Um, I thought that was really great. I just loved this whole sequence. I thought it was so fantastic. A lot of people wondering if we're going to get any more on Hodor's backstory. Um, I had asked Isaac Hempstead right about this as well. I was like, is that just for color? Is that just you know a, a fun little detail that we're getting to find out that Hodor was this kid, Willis, who could speak in full sentences? And Isaac Hempstead right said, oh, I, I would love to know more about that. I hope that that's not just a detail. Um, so I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that that's going to be an important thing, finding out how Hodor became Hodor? I don't think you introduce that unless you have Chekhov's Hodor? Yeah, I do think Chekhov's so. Willis. I think so. Now, and I would love to know is, was there some sort of a physiological issue that happened right. where did Hodor get sort of like, a, you know, a traumatic injury that happened that led to this where that he was fine and then he got hurt or is this some sort of a uh, self-induced like vow of I only will say this word and he's actually fine the whole time. (laughs) Yeah. We talked about like, is he Kaiser Soze? Is he verbal Kent? Mm -hmm. Verbal Hodor. Uh, Why? we, we had a, yeah, we had a question in from Hector who said, "Do you guys think that Benjen did something to cause Hodor to become Hodor, and this is why he took the black?" Because we did see Benjen Stark almost fighting against Hodor, and then old Nan comes along, or I guess young Nan at the time comes along, is like, "No, Hodor, you're just a stable boy. You're not fighting anybody." Do you think the implication there is that somebody in the Starks, maybe Benjen, hurts Hodor by accident, and now Hodor is Hodor, and Benjen Stark is ashamed that he takes the black? Starks are a proud family, but I kind of feel like that even, you know, any of these high houses of Westeros, you know, it's just something happens where, you know, you're horsing around, no pun intended, with the stable boy, and then there's an accident. I think they look past that. They say, yeah. you know, you know that's, that's not worth taking the black for. Yeah. Let's go down to present day Winterfell. Let's talk about yes. what happened in present day Winterfell, which was really, really awful. Robert Miller had written in, was last night the night that Ramsay Bolton officially passed Joffrey as the worst character in Game of Thrones history. If we're going to really list out the things that Ramsay has done versus what Joffrey did, I think that probably what Ramsay has done is more twisted than anything that Joffrey did in particular. I mean, what's the worst thing that Joffrey did? Joffrey ordered the mass execution of all of his father's alleged yeah, bastard uh, you children. You know, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> that was really bad. Yeah, we did see a lot of babies die that he, way. He yeah. brutalized several prostitutes and killed many of them, at least killed Roz with mm-hmm. a crossbow. Ned Stark, that whole business. I'll say that I think that Ramsey is worse only because Joffrey is a kid. And I think that he has less knowledge about what he does that one of my favorite people uh, to read or to listen to is uh, Chuck Klosterman. And I heard him in an interview recently with Michael Ian Black talking about his book, I Wear the Black Hat, which is a, a, a good read or listener for the audiobook version that the villain is the person 
who knows the most and cares the least. I don't know if Joffrey ever knew the most, but Ramsay does seem to know how the world works a bit more. So I think that he's probably the bigger villain. A bit more, but probably doesn't have it all figured out. And I feel like to have a guy like Ramsay now in control of Winterfell, uh, the way that he sees his control of Winterfell really impulsively kills Roose Bolton. Um, This feels like a guy who, to me, and I'm curious for your take, a little out of his depth right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's in over his head, but at least he's not 12. So I think that I have to say that the person who is more of an adult and capable of horrible things, where Joffrey is just this petulant brat. So Ramsay, he not only kills his father, but he also murders Walda, murders his own half-brother, feeds them to the dogs. It's really, really awful. Very Game of Thrones, maybe two Game of Thrones for certain people. But I think one of the big questions that comes from this is, We have seen in the past what happens when you cross House Frey. Uh, And Hunter Scholl writes in, will Ramsay face any repercussions from Walder Frey? I think Walder will be pretty angry about this. Yeah, he's going to be pretty pissed. We haven't seen Walder Frey since I believe it was early on in season four. I think he has. No, we haven't. We haven't even seen him since the episode after the Red Wedding. Oh, okay. The episode. I'm sorry that I got that. It's been a long time. I thought it was the beginning of season four, but you're right. It's the episode after the Red Wedding where in a minute. Yeah, it's been a minute and he has a scene with Bruce Bolton. And so I don't know if they're going to get him involved in some sort of a vengeance storyline. We just have so much going on to get the Walder Frey reaction to this. Well, we have seen Walder Frey in the trailer for season six. Oh, okay, so, good, good. So so we've seen that. So we know that at some point or another, even if it's just for a check-in, we're going to see Walder Frey again. The thing that's interesting about this, and again, why it's so ill-conceived and I think reflects that Ramsey Bolton going nowhere fast, except maybe straight to hell, uh, seven hells even, is House Frey was really one of the only friends of House Bolton, I feel like. I mean, we're seeing that the Karstarks are falling in line with Ramsay, and some of these other northern houses might fall in line as well. Uh, but the Boltons and the Freys, they were in league on that move against the Starks, and they were teamed up with the Lannisters. And since the Boltons turned their backs on the Lannisters, they were married uh, within the Frey family with Walda. So Ramsay is shutting down a fairly big ally in this really, really horrible swift move that he makes against his father and his father's wife and his half-brother. Not a great choice. Not a good choice to cross Walder Frey. I can't imagine that's going to be good. Yes. Well, they are in charge of crossing. So I think that's a big person. And he's not going to be getting any more two twins ice cream. Right. And Roose Bolton, he was very concerned about an invading Lannister army. And I think that, okay, taking away uh, the crossing at the twins was, you know, a key ally uh, or a key reason to keep uh, Walder Frey in the mix. Yeah. And now I think Walder Frey might say, okay, a Lannister attacking army, feel free go, to go north. Go quickly. I mean, we also know that like Walder Frey isn't a super sentimental guy. Uh, he is, you know, he's when, when Catelyn Stark holds his wife hostage and says, let my son go or I swear I'll kill your wife. He says, I'll find another. Uh, he also has like tons of kids. He has so many daughters. Right. So I don't know how sentimental he is, but that said, it's a slight. Yeah, and that's I don't all think that it's sentimental, though. I it's think a that slight. His whole deal is I need to marry off my kids to different houses. And OK, I have Walda married into the Bolton house. Great. They have the north. That's one thing off my to do list. And then what? They killed one of my daughters after I got them married into a house. That's going to infuriate him. 
That's going to infuriate him for sure. This was something that came up during the live show. Carl Dixon, as Carl Dixon says, could we see a resurrection? It would be awesome if Theon goes to Winterfell and is able to exact revenge on the Boltons while posing as Reek. Uh, and this was something that came up. Brendan Fitzpatrick had written in that the edit would have us believe that Theon meant the Iron Islands when he said he's going home. But is it possible that we're getting blindsided and he goes back to Ramsey? I've been thinking about this a little bit more since you brought this up on the live show, Rob. I feel like that's a really interesting way to go where we are being led to think especially with the juxtaposition of theon saying i'm going home and then we go to pike we go to the iron islands but for theon to return to winterfell i feel like there's a lot of story potential there it's interesting because i don't really think that that's where it's going to go i feel like that you have to have all this stuff going on with Greyjoys, and then why not have theon in the mix there what do you see him doing in winterfell I think that what S. Carl Dixon says, it would be awesome if Theon goes back to Winterfell and is able to exact revenge on the Boltons while posing as Reek. Can he blend in? Can he sneak in somehow? Can he do some damage from the inside? Can't imagine it would work out well for Theon ultimately, but I don't know about you. I'm not exactly betting on Theon making it out of this show alive to begin with. Isn't he just killed on sight when he returns? If if he is if he is seen, if he is glimpsed, if it is a very obvious return. But I mean, Theon knows Winterfell probably better than anybody who is actually at Winterfell right now, having grown up there. Uh, maybe he's got some tricks up his sleeve. That's possible. I mean, we'll see uh, where assassin, it goes. Reek the assassin. I mean, I think that's kind of revenge. Revenge. He's going to wreak some havoc, a reckoning. Reckoning. Yeah. <laughs> now, I think you had it with wreak havoc. I think that yeah. that was it. <laughs> I did all right for a minute there. Yeah, but I think that that'll be very interesting to see. I think that's one of the really fun things about this season, that there's so many different things that we don't know where it's going. I agree. All right, well, before we leave the Winterfell story, let's talk a little bit more about that really awful Ramsey scene. We had gotten a question, a long one, but a worthy question from Ethan Byler, who wrote this. During the recap show, you both seemed to take issue with the gruesome death of Walda at the hands of the Bolton Hounds and said that the scene was really unnecessary as we all knew that she was dead as soon as Ramsay called for her and the baby. While I agree that the scene was graphic and certainly chilling, I disagree with your premise that we didn't really need the scene as we knew she was dead already. How quickly you both forget that not just a short time ago after the season five finale did Rob question whether or not Stannis was truly dead at the hands of Brienne since we didn't really see it. Did I question it? I thought like I defended that Stannis was dead. <laughs> yeah, we might be misremembering. I could probably I was probably the one who was questioning it more. Uh, but not to interrupt Ethan. Ethan continues. Sorry. What about what about the Hound or Gendry or Rickon even? We have no idea or what Glenn. they are all. Or Glenn, <laughs> we have no idea what they are all up to, if anything. But in a world where someone can be dead and brought back to life by giving them a haircut, don't you think it's important to show that a character is truly dead? Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. I think that there's, you know, I think that this is a fair thing in terms of you want to make sure that it is clear that Walda is dead. Um, you know, whether or not it's something where you had to go to the great lengths that this scene went to to really draw it out and have it be a very uncomfortable scene to watch, uh, you do need to know definitively that Walda is dead. What do you think, Rob? Would it have been enough if Ramsey had told, you know, Karstark douche, hey, go find Walda and feed her to the hounds? Would you have been able to just assume from there that she's dead? I think that you probably would have assumed. I mean, I do think, though, that the part where he says, I am Lord Bolton, I think is a pretty great moment. It's a great moment. moment. It is a great moment. So 
I kind of feel like that you probably just could cut out. I mean, it was very obvious where it was going to the point that even my wife said that she just fast forwarded through that scene because she didn't want to see him right. kill the baby. So yeah. I think that you knew it was coming. I think it was a great scene. I mean, let's not nitpick it too much, but I think that. Uh, no, I don't. Th- yeah, I don't think it's worth nitpicking too much. I think uh, when, you know, we do these podcasts live immediately after we watch the episode or in the case of this season, a little while after we watch the episode, but still really close to the thing. So we're still processing everything and we're just happening to do that live on the air while other people are processing it at home uh, in the days since. I mean, it's a it's a grim scene it is really dark it is really brutal i do think it's consistent with game of thrones i think it's really consistent with ramsey there was a great article on vulture actually that was talking about just how awful ramsey is in the books and the types of things that he does in the books and the reputation he has all of the atrocities he commits and really looking back at that was a great reminder of how much worse and nastier he is there uh if you think that ramsey's bad on the show he is so such a bastard, a true bastard in the books. And we're really lucky that we haven't seen some of the things that he is capable of doing from there. I think that this was consistent with Ramsey's character. I think that it's, you know, it's really meant not that we don't already loathe the guy, but I think it really sets up where his headspace is right now, that this is a guy who in a moment of desperation and mania and sort of exasperation at finding out that his father had a son who was the new heir of Winterfell. He puts a plan into action without really thinking about it at all. And this is his level of taking care of it. You know, this is how he handles things. And that's a really scary thing for the North to be centered around. Um, so I think that it's important in a way to have a scene like this that really shows you just how remarkably violently unstable Ramsey Bolton is. Cause that's the guy that we're up against here in the North. Yeah. Brutal. Really brutal. Really, really brutal. I didn't love it. I probably won't go back and watch that scene, but I understand the thinking behind it at least. Okay. Uh, before we leave Winterfell for real Z's, any eulogy for our man, Bruce Bolton? Uh, I believe his name is Bruce Bolton, Josh. Once upon a time, yes. Bruce Bolton. Yes. Uh, so that uh, he was a really good character. I mean, I feel like that uh, we've compared him to Tywin Lannister yeah. uh, many, many times. I think that really is his com- his comparable figure. And I think that he is somebody who really did see the whole chessboard. He was just blind to the person at home in Ramsey, who he really felt like. I mean, that in hindsight, big mistake antagonizing Ramsey so much and really holding this whole thing about his heir over his head. Yeah, that ended up biting him in the butt or stabbing him in the chest, as it were. Yeah, I think that maybe the move is like, okay, Ramsey, look, here's what's going to happen. That we're going to, ha- you know, I'm having a baby, but you're still special. You're still number one. I'm going to give you whatever X, you know, whatever. You know, I'm going to have you be run- running this. I'm going to, you know, they didn't show- do enough to keep him on board. It's sort of like he felt like he was being replaced. And I think that Roos really fit into that. Yeah. Uh, do you want to hear the eulogy for Roos Bolton from Roos Bolton himself? Yes. I spoke to Michael McElliton, who's the actor who plays Roos, who's a really nice guy in person. I met him around the time of the premiere when they did the junket out there in L.A., and I got into an elevator with a bunch of other journalists, and we were going to be taken up to the third floor to do all of the interviews with everybody, and I'm about to walk out on the wrong floor, and as I'm walking out, 
Ruth Bolton, Michael McKelton walks in oh. and I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm getting off on the wrong floor. And it was a very awkward moment because I almost ran into him. And as he gets on the elevator and I get back on, I just kind of awkwardly said, uh, sorry, I just had to get off the elevator as soon as I saw Ruth Bolton get on. Mm-hmm. And he swiveled around and looked me right in the eye and we were no more than like a foot away from each other. And he smiled really big and he goes, hello. <laughs> that's my Ruth Bolton story. Uh, so that was, was he fun. wearing chainmail? <laughs> no, no chain. Well, I didn't check. I didn't check. So I mean, uh, listen, I have never claimed that I would survive uh, any of these egregious situations, uh, and this is a testament to that. The first thing I should have done was check for Under Armour, uh, <laughs> chainmail or actual Under Armour, which would have shown that he just takes care of himself. He's yeah. fit. Uh, but we had a good good interview that day. I spoke to him earlier today. Also, now that the episode is aired and he is he is gone, and I did not know that that was coming up. That's not in the books yet. Um, and this is what he said. I asked him, "What's the final word on Roos? Ultimately, what was his story from beginning to end?" This is his answer. I think he was one of the smartest, coldest, pragmatic, and political characters in Westeros. I think he was a guy who would stop at nothing to get power. I think that was his ultimate goal, getting House Bolton back on track and getting Winterfell and becoming Warden of the North. It's his lack of feeling for anything else and anyone else that made him impervious in a way. When you have a child or you love somebody, that's your Achilles heel on Game of Thrones because your enemy will find it. They'll use it against you. But Roos would easily dispense with Ramsay or any of his children. He would just find another one. When you're dealing with somebody like that, it's a pretty formidable opponent. I think that was his modus operandi, really, just getting power. The fact that he was always looking over his shoulder, he never rested on his laurels. Hmm. Okay. R.I.P. Bruce Bolton. Yes. So it's very sad to see him go. And that's it. That's, that, that's it for, for Roos. And now it's all in Ramsey's hands now. It's all in Ramsey's hands now. We talked a minute ago about uh, Theon. We talked about Reek. Let's go over to the Iron Islands really quickly. Let's take a voicemail from Eddie about the big scene at the Iron Islands this week. I was just wondering. Um, I didn't catch this new Greyjoy's name. I was wondering if his name is Desmond. Because <laughs> first thing he says to us is, Hello, brother. And he's gone a little wacky. I don't know. It seems like he might have been in a hatch or something on a mysterious island. I don't know. Thanks. Not Gendry's boat. <laughs> Not Gendry's boat. <laughs> that's really great. funny. Uh, that's really great. There is a penny in uh, A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, here uh, she sucks. Is, yeah, she's on a boat at one point. <laughs> No, it's not Penny's boat either. Uh, all right, Desmond Greyjoy, are we are we shipping that? Is he shipping that? Is he sailing that? Uh, he well, he is a pirate and he has a ship and he has a bunch of guys that had their tongues cut out. I don't know right. if that is anything like the Desmond that I know. I don't think so. So now I'm gonna say no. He's not in yeah. a race around the world, right? I don't think he's in a race around the world as a sailing race around the world, brother. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think so. I think that this is a different guy, unfortunately. This is Euron Greyjoy, who is played by uh, an actor named Pilu Asback. Uh, he is a character that we're meeting for the very first time. He kills his brother. He seems to be very much not liked here on the Iron Islands and very distant from the Iron Islands. It's a surprise that he is here at all. What he's doing here, why he's here, who really knows? I thought that his scene, I thought that his introductory scene was really spectacular. Um, I've been saying to a couple of people that I think that this scene 
that he has where he shows up here and he encounters his brother and they have this sort of big, very loaded conversation with lots of history between them before he throws his brother over the bridge. To me, that's one of the best scenes of the season so far. I know we're only two episodes in, but it was just such a charged moment and not to get into spoilers on another pop culture phenomenon, but it felt like a, it really felt to me like a scene from uh, star Wars, the yeah, recent star yeah, Wars yeah, movie yeah, that yeah, I thought yeah. was really good. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's just I it really took me out of it so much about really this is the bridge between these two buildings uh, <laughs> in Pike. How can you? Oh, man, it this really is, did this take is me the old it. Rob. This is the old Rob that used to say Bruce Bolton. This is Westeros. Weird, weird architecture is all over the place. Yeah, that's Get just over it. I mean, come, it's a little, come a little, on. Bit, a little bit like what? Come on. Uh, you know. <laughs> Hang on, lady. We going for a ride. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah it, it was a uh really a nice beginning for the uh, euron Greyjoy story and let's see where we go from here really curious to see where it goes i've kind of been just shorthand i'm sort of describing him as evil red viper uh and what i mean by that is when the red viper showed up Back in season four, that was a character who kind of just had this sort of immediate presence and this immediate charm about him and this immediate impact. And he was there for vengeance against the Lannisters. And he seemed like a guy that could get along with Tyrion, who is the only Lannister we really like at that point, maybe still, depending on your preferences. Um, and he's a guy who just has this real impact, even though he has never been on the show before. And you have the sense that he is going to be involved in some stuff. Uh, I feel similarly about Euron, especially the way that he showed up on the show. Um, I feel less certain about his role in the grand scheme of things based on the books, but I think that the fact that he's on the show suggests that he's going to be decently important, but where he differs from the Red Vipers, I think that this is a really bad guy. Uh, so if you're looking to really fall for a new character, uh, you're and you're going to end up falling like Balan Greyjoy. It's not going to be pretty. Uh, uh, but I think you need that here because I, I think that the job of the show here is make us care about what's going on on Pike. And we saw last season in Dorne, I think that pretty much for the most part across the board, we would say that the show failed in getting us interested in the Dorne storyline. Everything going on with uh, Prince Doran and and the Sand Snakes, there wasn't one character that really captivated us in that story. And we really relied on, you know, Jamie and Braun. And then when they weren't doing something interesting there, that's where it really, really dragged. Here, with Euron Greyjoy, if it turns out that he is going to be somebody who lights up the screen, I think that's going to really help us be interested in what's going on whenever we cut to Pike. I thought this one scene, this one scene was better than every single scene we've ever gotten in Doran combined. Okay. All right. That's hot take. Okay. Not bad. I don't think anyone's going to really fight you on that. Hot take. Hot take. Uh, let's ship away from the Iron Islands. Let's go over to Meereen. Let's talk about Tyrion Lannister a little bit. That whole great scene where he is talking about his childhood dream of meeting a dragon. And here you are. And it's so wonderful. And then he tells Varys to punch him in the face. What did you make of this scene in terms of what it means moving forward? Did you take it more as, you know, we have to get the dragons back into play. And so Tyrion is just going to be kind of a means to that end. Or does it mean more for Tyrion than that? This was from Brendan Fitzpatrick, who had said, will we get Tyrion on a dragon by the end of the season now? Do you think that that's a possibility based on the way this whole scene played out with Tyrion's fascination with dragons and realizing that fascination in reality? I think for Tyrion, just going next to the dragons was enough. I don't know why we necessarily would need Tyrion Lannister to ride a dragon. Because it way. would be awesome. It surely would be awesome to see Peter Dinklage 
riding a flying dragon. That certainly would be be amazing. I just don't know why in the plot we would need, unless we had a scenario like last season with Danny in the marina where it was going to be where he was in some sort of danger and the only escape route out. You saw him at the end of that scene say to Varys, if I ever think of something like that again, punch me in the face. I would think that riding one of the dragons would constitute something punching in the face worthy. Well, then aren't we just setting up one of the greatest literal punchlines in the history of Game of Thrones where Tyrion is going to ride on a dragon, he's going to ride to safety, and then he's going to come back and he's going to hop off the dragon and he's going to walk up to Varys for a big like bro embrace and Varys is just going to clock him in the head? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be good. I think that's what this is all about. It's what it's all leading up to? Yeah, we're just setting that up. I could see it. Yeah, not really. Yeah, uh, but we'll we'll see. I don't think that you need Tyrion to ride the dragon. I think that Tyrion, as the father of dragons, the or the babysitter of dragons, while <laughs> yeah. Danny is away, I think is a fun thing going on here in season six. He is the dragons au pair, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, Andrew had written in, how the heck do the dragons get out from the temple? Is there an escape hatch? You and I, you and I, Rob, we had batted this around a little bit during the live show, uh, wondering like, well, what's the next step? You know, if Tyrion wants them to, you know, be, you know, bigger and not be house cats and things like that, aren't they supposed to come out of there? I think that's not exactly what he's saying. I think what he's saying is dragons need to be able to arrange. They need to be able to move. And the fact that they were chained up really limited their mobility. I don't think Tyrion is advocating for just like letting them out right now. I think he's advocating for letting them run around in their little dungeon home. I don't know. I thought that he was going to let them out and go free. So you think that if you could just keep them, you know, down the basement with the door closed, as long as they're not in chains, they'll be okay. Yeah, I think he's like, he's talking about like, let's, you know, keep them unchained, let them wander around there, let's kind of reintegrate them with some good people, and then maybe they will be a little bit more manageable when we do need them at some point in time. That's interesting. Um, Yeah, I was wondering the same thing. How are they going to get out of those? I don't even know how they got them in that thing uh, to begin with. Right. uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see what is going to, to happen or what they would do if they did get out. Right. You know, it's like uh, they, they, they want the you know, they don't want the dog to like stay in the cage 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But they don't want the dog to just like run anywhere in the world that they want to go. They want the dog to be in the house. House dog. OK. House, house dragons. OK. So they, they could house train the dragons. I think that's what they're trying to do here. OK. Uh, shifting over to Bravos, let's talk a little bit about Arya. Ali B had written in, I think Arya is going to get her eyes back, which is good news, but part of me feels a little disappointed that she never got better at fighting using the Force. Seems like something a ninja assassin might be able to do. What's your take on this, Rob? Is Arya going to get her eyesight back, and if so, is it coming back as soon as this upcoming episode? No, I think she's going to be blind for most of season six, and I think that once she finishes her training... I think that's when she's going to get her eyesight back. I, I don't think that we're going to end the Arya is blind story as quickly as the Jon Snow is dead story. Yeah. So you think that she's still going to be blind, but you think it'll be reversed at some point. Yeah. I don't think it lasts the whole season, but I think that we're going to have this go on for a bit. What is the ultimate gain from having Arya be blind for a while? Like, what are we getting out of this? To me, Arya has just been sort of like going through the motions with the faceless man and Jack and Hagar in that she just wants to be trained to be a badass so she can kill everybody that she knows. And then I think that she eventually is going to give up that bloodlust for whatever the teachings of Jack and Hagar are. And I think at that point, then she really will get her sight back. 
So you think that she is going to end up being like a straight up faceless assassin. She will be good with the whole system. She will not have her personal vengeance anymore. You think she's going to graduate and be a loyal soldier? Well, how do we get her out of this storyline if that's not going to be the case? She could kill everybody at the House of Black and White and then go off and do some stuff. No, she can't. Why can't she? She keeps going to kill Jack and Agar. Yeah, why not? There is no Jack and Hagar. That's the lesson at the end of season five, right? I guess so. I guess so. She doesn't have a friend in Jack and Hagar. Mm -hmm. So why not just kill a faceless man? I mean, they're no one after all. For a character like Arya, I do think that having a place with the faceless men, if, I mean, what is Arya's happy ending in all of Game of Thrones? That her, she's been the character that has been the most resistant to. Sansa wants to be a queen. She wants to have babies. Arya wants no part of that. She wants to be a knight. Isn't this her happy ending to go and be one of these faceless assassins at the end of the day? This is Game of Thrones. Who said that Arya Stark gets a happy ending? I, I'm on board with the rest of the remaining Starks having a happy ending. I hope so. Or I at least so. dying valiantly for, like, I think that the worst is over. See, my feeling for Arya has been, like, this sort of slow freefall into her just being a little bit of a murder monster that we saw with her against Marin Trant in season five was really what we thought was the pinnacle of her killing spree and her, her brutality. Yeah, I think her- that was rock bottom. I think she's well, going to come back. I hope so. I hope so. But I think that, you know, the story for her still has potential to be that we have not reached the bottom and that the bottom is very, very far down. Um, and Arya's story, you know, as she is literally, you know, submerged in darkness right now without being, you know, without her eyesight, I think that the story of Arya could be incredibly dark moving forward. I think that it could be a situation of just how badly vengeance can consume you. A lot of the time our hands are in the air and we're cheering whenever Arya does something badass, but my feeling is that Game of Thrones might have a moment at some point in the future that's really going to subvert our feelings on that with Arya, where we are really typically excited when Arya does something cool, and eventually she's going to do something where we're going to be like, not cool, Arya. Jack and Hagar? Whether to Jack and Hagar or somebody in Westeros, I don't know. Um, My feeling is that it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better for Arya, if it ever gets better. I think that Jack and Hagar can get her back on the straight and narrow where, okay, she is willing to be a murderer, but she's going to be murdering for the right reasons, and she'll let go of some of these vendettas. Okay, well, we'll see. We'll see. Agree to agree to disagree. (laughs) Okay. We'll see. You don't have chapters of the book that cover this, right? No, her ultimate fate is unknown to me. Uh, she is still in Bravos as of the books. Still, still in Bravos as of the books. So I have no idea. Uh, most of what we've seen on the show is most of what's in the books, like a little bit here and there. But for the most part, we are we're fairly close to completely caught up on Arya. So we'll see where Arya goes from here. But I think it's going to be more training, and I think that they're going to be able to. I guess so. She's sort of like the young. Anakin Skywalker and and so can you train her in the force like I don't know uh, that you know she's the the one from the prophecy she's a bad apple yeah she's gonna be Darth Arya or (laughs) Daria Vader something like that yeah la 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 Uh, all right (laughs) may the fourth be with you (laughs) yeah oh that's right happy may the fourth Rob yeah yeah may the fourth be with you Uh, all right let's talk about King's Landing really quickly let's take a voicemail from John Santucci who wanted to ask a question about what Sir Robert Strong was up to in this episode hi Robin Josh this is John Santucci in season six episode two home we were treated to a completely gratuitous revenge kill that I initially find to be superfluous I'm talking about zombie mountains dispatching 
of the King's Landing resident who shook his dingling at Cersei during a walk of shame. Is Zombie Mountain enforcing some kind of no-smack-talking-about-Cersei command? Is this really the best way for him to be spending his time? To me, it seemed like a cheesy TV moment because I had no skin in the game regarding Mr. Dingling Shaker. But is there a hidden purpose for this scene? Because I really would have preferred a Frogert-like death scene for Ollie rather than what we received in Home. Thanks. Love the show. Good question. Good question. Uh, so what to you was the purpose, other than it just being a little bit of a lark and being kind of uh, like a, a dark comic moment uh, with Robert Strong smashing this guy into the wall? Did you take any other meaning from it? No, I think they just needed somebody for him to kill, and you can't really have him kill anybody from, that's with the High Sparrow without it being a whole big thing or somebody from the Kingsguard. So I don't know who you were going to have him kill other than just some uh, red shirt from Flea Bottom. Uh, it was a very long scene, and I, I'm not talking about the endowment of uh, Mr. Dingling. Sure. Uh, uh, it was funny to me, just like, because I watched the episode again before we did this, and it's like, uh, so what is Sir Robert Strong's day like? Did he hear this <laughs> firsthand, or does somebody come to Sir Robert Strong and be like, you know, uh, so between you and me, there's this guy, and he keeps telling this story about Cersei, and it's really, the guy it's is really classless. It's, it's really, really, really vulgar. Like, and I've got kids, and he's saying this around them. Yeah, yeah, it's just really not cool. He's really throwing a lot of shade at Cersei, and I, did, I don't know how that happened, because you would think if he heard it firsthand, he would just go over there. So it's almost like he heard it through the grapevine. Right. Uh, I don't know what his day is like. Maybe he's like he's like Candyman where, you know, you say Cersei Lannister enough times and he just appears. You know, he's like Cersei Lannister's Candyman and he just shows up to kill you. Also, another theory, which is possible, perhaps he's just on watch and anybody peeing on the street. It yeah, just what happens. That. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is, he didn't even hear the story about Cersei. Yeah. They say don't go chasing waterfalls, uh, but Robert Strong can't help it. Yeah, he's so. after those golden waterfalls. He's on the lookout. I think in terms of what's the point of the scene, I think you're right. I do think, you know, it's like, let's just have Robert Strong kill somebody here. And if he kills somebody from the High Sparrows crew, if he kills somebody from the Faith Militant, that is a big thing. Or if he kills somebody from the City Watch, which it looked like for a second after this scene, he might have done. Uh, that also would be a really big thing. And it's probably too early in the season for such big things to happen. But you got to imagine that these big things will happen at some point this season or at some point in this series. I think that the point of Sir Robert Strong is he's kind of he's this big ass bomb that's waiting to go off. And I think when you have a moment where he's just in the alley and looking at the guy and he just lifts him up and in one swift effortless move knocks him into the wall and the guy's head is officially paced. It doesn't even exist anymore. I think it's just a demonstration of this guy's power. And my hunch is that this guy is going to be unleashed on the Faith Militant. And what the Faith Militant have in numbers, Robert Strong has in strength, as his name implies. And I think to demonstrate that now, so whatever big, big monumental action scene we're going to get at some point this season, I think it has extra juice because you've seen him in action. Would we root for Sir Robert Strong against the Faith Militant? Uh, I think, yeah. I yeah. think I would. I think I will. Yeah, I would I mean, too. You know, this is actually not that hard of a position. The faith militants seem like real. They uh, suck. Yeah, the lame militant. Yeah. <laughs> the, the faith impotent. Oh, come on. Come on. Let's Sorry. not go there. I don't want to go there. I apologize to everybody. Yeah. Uh, 
now Robert Strong is sneaking up behind me. Yeah, I watch think it's it. just like he doesn't like any of those jokes. That's what it's coming up. Yeah, that's, what's, that's what it comes down to. I think that I would pick Robert Strong because uh, he is the cooler character. Oh, by far, by yeah. far. And I think that he he needs to stick around until he meets one one. Okay, yeah, that'd maybe be a that good was battle. the setup because one one threw a guy into a wall in this week, and so did Robert Strong. Is it just like who did it better? And we're like keeping a running tally until these two meet. I think that that would be an interesting comparison in terms of just like tracking that down. If one, one starts peeing on a wall, let's see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, KDD had written in about the scene with the high sparrow and Jamie Lannister in the set where high sparrow shows up. Jamie looks like he's about to kill the guy. And uh, then all the faith militants show up would have been really great to have Robert strong there. Uh, KDD had written in. So Jamie isn't allowed to shed blood in the sept, but clearly the high sparrow has no problem at all threatening to do it. I don't think it's too much of a stretch that there's a different set of rules for the High Sparrow than anybody else. He is the one who's enforcing the law. I think that sort of puts him above the law. And, you know, he can say, oh, okay, well, you know, Jamie Lannister, he's a, you know, uh, he committed incest. He committed, he murdered the Mad King. We had to do what we had to do. I don't think anybody would question that. I don't think, uh, I think the thing with the High Sparrow that's really useful to keep in mind is this is a guy who, you know, it's uh, do as I say, not what I do. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that he is he is the rule maker. He's the shot caller. I think that he believes in what he's doing. I think that he is devout to a point. Uh, but I think that for him, he's very Machiavellian where the ends justify the means. And I think that he would he would suffer a little blood on his brow if it meant getting his way. So I think that he wouldn't have much of an issue. I think that he would find some sort of justification for what he's doing. Most bad guys tend to do that. Uh, and I think that this is a pretty bad guy. I have a question for you. Why doesn't the High Sparrow arrest Jamie Lannister? I mean, if he is going to arrest Cersei and then make her have to do atonement, Jamie Lannister is admitting a bunch of things that he did. What benefit does it serve him to have Jamie Lannister out there and potentially as somebody who's working against him? Well, theoretically, we didn't see another Jamie Lannister scene in this episode. Uh, and it concludes without Jamie walking out of there. Mm-hmm. It's, is it impossible that Jamie has been arrested? Is it impossible that Jamie is being thrown behind bars? I feel like that that's a big thing to yada yada if we just go to the next episode and Jamie is sitting there with uh, the nun like, uh, confess confess <laughs> uh, I would love to see Jamie confess. Lannister against Septa Unella that would be really great I don't think that that's the case yeah I don't think so either uh, how does it benefit well if he arrests Jamie Lannister okay he is inciting a big incident is he ready for such a big incident and what's the charge what's the charge I mean the same exact stuff that he busted Cersei for right I mean he has as much evidence against Jamie as he did about Cersei well, the crime against Cersei was sleeping with Lancel, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, so. What's the, where's Jamie in all this? There's rumors. There's, you know, there's suspicion. Mm-hmm. Is anything spelled out? I mean, it, he did admit to killing the Mad King and yeah. stuff like that. I, I'm sure you could find stuff for Jamie. Yeah, I'm sure. If you wanted right. to. All right, let's take another voicemail. This is about one of our favorite people from King's Landing who we have yet to see this season. Let's take this from Wendy, who is calling from North of the Wall. Hey, Rob and Josh. It's Wendy calling from north of the wall up here in Canada. Um, my question is, I'm, I'm really unclear about where, where Littlefinger is right now. Uh, I think we're supposed to think that he's holding up in the veil with Robin Aaron, who, I mean, maybe by now Robin Aaron's some great warrior if he's been eating the same Wheaties as Bran Stark. 
but basically, we know that Peter thinks chaos is a ladder. Before he went missing, he set up he set it up for Stannis and the Boltons to battle each other, and he set it up for the Lannisters and Tyrells to battle each other. So maybe he's turned his attention south and started whispering in the ears of the Sand Snakes too, which is literally the only thing that might make them mildly interesting. But more importantly. My question is, could the person controlling the Sons of the Harpy be Peter Baelish? Tyrion and Varys already said that they suspect the Sons are being controlled by a single person, and who better than Baelish to stir things up? The first sign that we had of the Sons of the Harpy was when they killed White Rat, and that happened in a brothel with a prostitute. Peter knows a thing or two about working with prostitutes. Also, how cool would it be for Tyrion and Varys to figure out that their greatest new foe was their old pal from King's Landing? I would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Bye. What do you think about all that? Do you want to go down that white rat bit hole? <laughs> I think that it just seems like too big of a thing for Littlefinger to be orchestrating, especially he seems like he has hands full with everything going on in Westeros. I'd be surprised if that was the case. I'd be surprised. But that being said, the idea of Tyrion and Varys in like this deadly battle of the wits against Littlefinger would be really, really great. Mm -hmm. That he's organizing the sons of the harpy. Right. I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot. I don't think that it's happening. I just think it would be really, really neat. Sure. It would be great to see when and where Littlefinger is going to show up this season, but I don't think that his little fingers can reach all the way into Marine right now. <laughs> too little. They're too tiny. Yes. Tiny fingers compared to uh, the reach that you would need yes. to get from the reach to <laughs> Marine. So I don't think that that's necessarily the case for Littlefinger's story. Yeah, I think that that would be tough. It would be cool. I think that would be really cool. What would his gain be? You know, what's the goal? What's the what's the upside of tossing Mirin into chaos on top of everything else that's already so chaotic? Well, it's if Danny is getting too powerful, I feel like that Danny riding in on her dragons into Westeros, the rightful Targaryen ruler returning. I think that that certainly would not necessarily be chaos i think that would be like oh she should be the queen okay right uh little finger step aside so i think if you really wanted chaos if you really wanted everything destabilized a real front runner for the crown i think would probably be something you would not want sure fair enough all right well let's wrap up uh the feedback show by looking ahead at next week's episode let's take one final voicemail this is from andrew from ireland hey guys this is andrew calling in from ireland I'm just wondering about the title of the next episode, because we know that all Game of Thrones episode titles are to do with more than just one character. So Oathbreaker obviously um, means a lot to different characters. And I'm thinking uh, possibly John with breaking his oath to the Night's Watch. Maybe this will set him free now that he is, you know, technically not bound to them anymore. It could also be maybe about Arya. Maybe she uses this opportunity to escape from... Uh, Bravos and goes rogue back to Westeros. Uh, could be Brienne. Who else do you think uh, this title could be linked to? Thanks, guys. Thank you. Hmm. So this is interesting. So the next episode, episode three of season six, coming up on Sunday night, is called Oathbreaker, uh, which is sort of a mirror image of a season four episode that Oath was Keeper. called 
Oathkeeper, which is also the name of Brienne's Valyrian sword. Uh, Oathkeeper, by the way, some of you may recall this, is the episode of Game of Thrones that ended with the first reveal of the Night's King and going into White Walker territory, into their home turf for the very first time. And it was such a big, mind-melting deal for me that we called an emergency session of podcasting with Terry Schwartz, and thus the Game of Thrones book club was born. So my speculation, Rob, is that something so earth-shattering will happen in Oathbreaker that Terry and I will get into a fight and the Game of Thrones book club will end. <laughs> That's where it, it and, dies. And yeah. you and Terry will break your oath to each other? Is that yeah. what this is all about? Yeah, and the Game of Thrones book club will be finished. Okay, well, I'm I'll just... I'll that pastor when I record the book club with her tonight. <laughs> no one spoil this for Terry. All right, don't spoil it for Terry. Uh, so... Who are the people with oaths? So obviously you have Brienne, who yeah. was part of the Oath Keeper title. Uh, yeah. You've talked about Jon Snow, whether or not he could break his oath to the Night's Watch, potentially that it was to death and he could walk away from the Night's Watch. Sure, and he also has a bunch of prisoners at the Night's Watch right now, or at least the Night's Watch is holding a bunch of prisoners right now, and Alistair Thorne and Ollie and all those guys who you could certainly argue, and I think it would be harder to argue against, that these people are also oathbreakers. What other characters have sworn oaths to one another? Um, well, you said Brienne, we said John. I think that this point about Arya is interesting. Uh, she certainly has sworn an oath to Jack and Hagar to take her training seriously again. That is something that just happened mm-hmm. in this episode. Some other oaths that have been promised. Cal Moro promised to Daenerys that no one would harm her. Mm-hmm. Um, that she is protected now. She is also, she was also told that she will be going to stay in Vyastothrak with all of the Dosh Kaleen, the widowed Khaleesi. Uh, will she be staying there or is that oath going to be broken? Does Grey Worm have an oath to the Unsullied to not take a wife? Ooh, I don't know. I don't know what the rules are there. <laughs> Could Grey Worm and Missandei get married next week? Maybe, maybe. Um, if the if the faith militant are breaking their oaths to cause violence inside of a sept or something like that. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Many oaths. Unapu. I think a lot of oaths will be broken in the episode entitled Oathbreaker. So we will see what happens this Sunday night when we are back again live. Uh, sometime we'll, we'll call it what, like around like uh, 1130 Eastern time, you know, and I really do apologize for this. I know we've been so punctual in the past about just being able to get on the air as soon as an episode of game of Thrones ends. I'm obviously working on game of Thrones coverage as a, as a full-time job for me right now. I have to write those recaps immediately after the episode ends. So we can't just come right on the air live. I have a couple of stories that I have to write every Sunday night. So we're shooting for 1130 somewhere in that sweet spot or bittersweet spot of a 1130 to midnight Eastern time. That's the goal. Hopefully we hit it. I think that we will. I think that people are happy when there's a podcast on Monday morning and then to whatever time we get on, I think that is going to be okay. It's just the reality of the situation. So we'll live with it. We'll all get together. We'll all talk about Game of Thrones as soon as we possibly can on Sunday night. Okay. We will not break our oath to deliver a podcast. Yes. A podcast will be delivered. Timing TBD. Loosely 1130 to 12 Eastern time. Josh, we have a lot of different ways we could go for the hashtag today. All right. What did we right, get? Here we what, go. what are your favorites? Number one, yeah. Daria Vader. <laughs> la, 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 la. Uh, number two, not Gendry's boat. <laughs> I love that. That's really great. <laughs> uh, number three, wreak havoc. Uh-huh. Uh, number four, LOL Weekly. <laughs> 
And number five, FAO Terry Schwartz. Oh my God. FAO Terry Schwartz is really funny. That's probably a better book club hashtag. She's not here. She would be very confused if people just started tweeting FAO Terry well, Schwartz. Well, that's why I her. think it's great. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good enough for me. Okay. FAO Terry Schwartz. Any one of those are really good. That's the hashtag here for this feedback show. All right. So. Very excited to be back with you again this Sunday night to talk about episode number three. And then we're closing in on being like uh, 30% of the way through the season. Season's flying by. Season's flying by. Very happy. Very happy with it. (laughs) All right. Well, good stuff all the way around. Of course, follow Josh. Don't miss any of the great stuff he's doing for The Hollywood Reporter. He is at Round Howard. I'm at Rob Sisterdino. If uh, for some reason you wanted to follow me as well. I am not writing any articles about Game of Thrones right now. Just making podcasts. Great tweets, though. Yeah, do what I can. High quality tweets. Also, then we look forward to reading your comments on postshowrecaps.com. And we do appreciate it when you subscribe and rate the podcast at postshowrecaps.com slash G-O-T iTunes. Uh, We're hovering right around in that top 10 in the TV and film podcast. That's where we like to be. uh, Thanks to you guys. So we appreciate all the feedback and star ratings because it does work in helping people find the podcast. So thank you guys so much. Thank you so much. Yes. All right, Josh, anything else? No, uh, Game of Thrones Book Club recording tonight, dropping at some point this week. The Mr. Robot podcast has officially started with Antonio Mazzaro and myself. First episode of the Rewatch Project is going to be posting sometime this coming weekend, so keep an eye out for that. Otherwise, all Game of Thrones all the time. Antonio and I also had a Better Call Saul Season 2 feedback show, which is going to be dropping imminently as well as our Fear the Walking Dead coverage coming on Mondays uh, after all the Fear the Walking Dead podcasts all on posturerecaps.com. All right, everybody. That is, all, that is also not uh, Gendry's boat. Not Gendry's boat. Yeah, yeah Abigail is not Gendry's boat. No. All right, take care, everybody. Bye.